the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today we have the pleasure of being joined by cassie campbell vp of fair welcome cassie hi thank you for having me max it's a pleasure to have you uh, for our audience that don't know about uh, maybe your background uh, do you mind introducing a little bit about what you do at fair a little bit about how you got there great yeah so i'm the vp of product at fair and um, i've been here just over two years now. How I got here was um, through being pulled in by somebody that I'd worked with in the past, which is how I've gotten most of my jobs throughout my career. Um, but yeah, I joined FAIR pre-launch in um, March 2017. It was amazing. There were so many brilliant people here working on so many facets of the business and the, the product and the technology. An engineer that I had worked with before brought me in and I, you know, I was just there to help synthesize all this amazing work and really define what our launch product would be and get us out the door. And it's been a rocket ship ride ever since. So pre-launch, uh, for audience that might not know exactly how that fits in the life cycle of a business, what is, what is joining a company pre-launch like? Pre-launch means we had no customer facing product that was available, right? There was nothing live in the app store and our website was a brochure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so it's really exciting. And actually, um, you know, I'm, I've been fortunate to be able to do ground, you know, ground up launches a few times in my career. So this wasn't my first go at it, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, the, the exciting part about joining a company pre-launch is that, you know, often, unless you're the founders from the very beginning, um, uh, you know, you join a company and there's a strong vision for what people want to have executed, but the actual, um, creation of that and development of that, being able to be a part of that from the beginning is really exciting. And, and I would say another part of it too, which is really cool is that joining a company like fair where, you know, Scott Painter, our CEO very explicitly chose this word to define and name and brand his company. Being part of the company at that early stage also meant helping define what it meant to work at FAIR and be at FAIR and what the FAIR culture would be. So it's really, uh, it's really been an honor to be there and really been exciting, an exciting journey. Yeah, we, we should also kind of plug what FAIR does as a business. Uh, you guys sort of rent slash lease cars to self-drivers or professional drivers. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think the initial vision of FAIR was that there hadn't been a real innovation in the way that people can access cars in 50 years. You know, like, you know, there was, you could buy a car, you could get a loan to get a car, you could lease a car. All of those required certain level of financial qualifications and, you know, long-term commitments. And in the day and age where you can, um, you know, order something on Netflix and have it delivered right away and then quickly choose that you want to go over to Hulu instead, right? Like there is just this expectation of, um, you know, companies that interact with consumers to have a product that's earning the right to be that first product every step of the way versus being locked into it right in a contract. Um, and so I think the initial vision was really how do we provide customers access to cars in a way that makes sense for today's dynamic lifestyle. You know, there's so many people that have much more dynamic lives than in the past. We talk about hopping jobs more often than in the past. We talk about moving cities more often in the past. And then, you know, it's kind of the same with, um, you know, car access. Why shouldn't it be the same? 
So it's a real innovation in, in mobility. Yeah, I was going to also mention when you're describing the brand of FAIR, uh, we should point out that the founder of FAIR previously founded TrueCar, which a lot of your audience is probably familiar with that brand. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm just amazed that you guys got FAIR.com. That is incredible to me that you guys have that domain name. <laughs> it's such a great branding move for obvious reasons. Uh, but yeah, it's such an awesome domain name to have. <laughs> Was that yeah. available at launch? Um, well, that happened before I got there. Um, but I think all the credit goes to Scott for that one. Fair enough. Fair enough. So one of the reasons that I thought it would be great to have you on the podcast is we've had product managers on the show before, but uh, I think it's always great to hear a sto stories of, you know, uh, what you think are important for product managers uh, to have in mind as they navigate their career, especially working with software products. So uh, I know you've spoken at places like Caltech um, kind of about uh, the mindset that, you know, aspiring product managers should have about their, you know, maneuvering through the job market and their performance on the job. So uh, the topic that you've talked about previously is about growth and self-managing your career. Uh, can you share a little bit with our audience what you've shared to audiences at places like Caltech? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think one of the, the questions I get asked often is, um, you know, how do I grow and how do I get to the next level? And, um, and, it, and when I look back on my career, you know, it's been about a collection of experiences and how they all come together for me. Um, and there are just stories that I have in my history of where I've encountered different positions in my career and been able to then get to that next step. So, um, you know, one of the things that I like to talk about with growth is that people should have an intention behind it and not just say, oh, I'm going to work really hard. And because I'm working so hard and doing great work, the reward will come, right? I think it's really important to set an expectation with yourself because it's, you know, honoring your own self and where you want to go. And then with your manager of, okay, I'm at point A, I want to get to point B and how can we do that together? Um, there are a couple of ways that you can do that as an individual. Um, one would be um, wherever you go, you know, that there often are things like called leveling matrices. You can Google that, um, you know, I know uh, there's a few that are available online, but knowing where you're at in your career, like if you were a uh, associate product manager and you wanted to get to product manager, or if you're a level one engineer and you want to get to level two, there are a lot of places that have literally, this is what it defines being a level one. And then this is how one would define being a level two. Um, so for example, when I manage my team, we have these leveling matrices and for each individual, we say, okay, here's your level. Here's what you need to do to get to the next level. And we bullet by bullet. And uh, the conversation isn't like, oh, you didn't do this thing. You, you know, you're not at that level yet. It's really more about okay, I want you to grow because by you growing, you're going to add more value at this company. And um, I want you to grow because I care about you as an individual. And then the other person saying, I want to grow because they want to grow their career. How do I set you up with the right experiences, responsibilities, projects, training, whatever it is to mark that bullet green and knock it out of the park. And I think, you know, you should try and find a place where you can foster that kind of a relationship with your with your management, um, with your, your boss, with other people within the company, 
Um, and if you don't have that, then try to create it for yourself. Like I've done that at places where I've said, I really need to get from level X to Y. I want, how, how do I do that? And people looked at me and shrugged and I said, okay, well, let's figure out what I need to do to do that. And I like upward managed that. Right. So you, it, it, that's an option for some people. And if the culture or the type of company you're at just isn't up for that, then go move, go somewhere else, you know? So I think it's just really important to be, feel empowered to manage your career and, and do things like that. That has a super interesting parallel to software engineering career paths where there's the individual contributor and there's the management and there's kind of a choice you make about the track that you end up on. And like you say, the checkboxes are totally different and you are the only one that can really be responsible for uh, your own (laughs) decision-making about whether you check off the checkboxes you need uh, to be eligible for those roles. So um, I think a lot of our audience who are software engineers might be familiar with the checkboxes you might need to get to the next individual contributor role or the next management role. But what are some of the checkboxes that, for example, you knew you had to uh, find a way to check off, but uh, had difficulty in uh, finding either a project to work on or an in- initiative that you could involve yourself with that allowed you to check off a checkbox for product management, I guess. For myself, there have been a few things that I wanted to get experience in. And one of them was doing a uh, ground up launch of something. So that was really, it's different when you join a company and you're iterating on a feature and you know, that you want to increase the click-through rate on something. And so then, you know, so you're really focused on improving that click-through rate. And it's completely different than, you know, blue sky. Oh, we're completely changing something. And how do we do that? And what's the full end-to-end build of that? Um, So that would be one. Um, I had the fortunate opportunity to do that um, uh, in 2007, when I joined Virgin Charter, it was a, a one of the first online booking tools for private jet charter back um, in the day, and we got funded by by, by Virgin. And um, yeah, I led the product management there, and it was a really exciting journey. Um, I would say another one would be really for product managers is ownership of a PNL at some point um, to not just be accountable for the performance of a feature from a user engagement perspective, but also from a um, business performance perspective. So, you know, I thought that was a really great experience to um, do a ground up launch again um, and run a team. I, I was like an incubator project and I had a team of 10 people, one of whom was one of the engineers that came, brought me in at FAIR. Um, but then, you know, I was accountable for the weekly business performance review of here here are the finances behind this and here's how it's performing and what our budgeting process was and all all the end to end. And I think those are really great experiences for product managers to get and or engineers looking to get into product management or head towards that CEO track or whatever it is. Totally fair. Yeah. No, I think a a fair amount of our audience are curious about that and, and what, what, how, the the stakeholders who make decisions about hiring a CEO or, or backing a CEO are made and knowing the experiences that are valuable to, to be in that role is super interesting, I think. Uh, 
I, I know that a topic that uh, a lot of people are curious about when it comes to qualification for being a product manager is whether you need to be a software engineer or whether you need to have an engineering background. And um, when it comes to maybe different stages of companies, uh, I, I understand there's a lot of pressure at pre-launch stage to you know build the product. Um, so is there is there a, a, a preference that different stage companies have about whether you are or not an engineer or a product manager with an engineering background? Is that a requirement in some circumstances, or when when is when is the demand for product management with engineering background a big deal? Um, you know, I it's really hard for me to say. I would say when I joined Virgin Charter, I was the fifth employee. And there were a CTO and an engineer, and they did not need another person that was going to get into the code. They needed somebody that could help bridge the conversations with the um, founders who were sales guys. So I was able to help create that bridge. Um, and that was being number five at a startup. So it, yeah, in that context, it's so early. Right. And then when I joined Virgin or when I joined uh, fair, um, you know, I think there were about 20 engineers and there were no product managers, uh, though Scott definitely is a product leader and, and visionary. Um, but it was, um, again, not a context where engineering skill was needed. I would say as a product manager, now I will say in my, when I was looking to get into product management, when I was in my early 20s, I was at Yahoo and um, in the ad tech space. And I was in product marketing. And I remember being told by a product manager that I wasn't technical enough to get into product management. I said, hmm, I think that that's interesting. And I kind of put that comment aside. And then within, you know, I think three months, um, a woman who I had worked with uh, pulled me into a product management role. <laughs> she called me out of the blue and said, I need you to come over here and be a product manager. I said, okay. <laughs> so, you know, it, you know, you get different types of feedback. And, um, and, uh, and I think, the main thing as a product manager looking to become uh, work a lot with engineers is that um, there just needs to be a level of a deep level of respect and collaboration between the two departments. And um, there's this saying that, you know, oh, product managers should describe the what and the why and engineers should then focus on the how. And I can understand where that context comes from, though I've worked in plenty of companies where those lines get blurred as long as they can be blurred with, you know, respect between departments. But, you know, as a product manager where the extent of my coding comes from TAing VBA for Excel when I was in college, um, the coolest, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the good tips would be just talk to engineers and learn about what they're doing. If you're trying to solve a problem and you have a vision for what to execute and an engineer says, oh, it's going to be really hard, you know, pull them aside after a meeting and get a, get in front of a whiteboard and be like, hey, help me understand this. Because, you know, a lot of problems in the technology space can be broken down into inputs and outputs. If this, then that, like, cause and effect and if you just have good critical thinking skills and curiosity and open-mindedness, you can really learn a lot and create a lot of empathy between departments, which helps a lot in productivity. Agreed. Agreed. And I, I think we'd both 
kind of punctuate that statement by saying that, yeah, an engineering degree is definitely not a prerequisite for being a product manager, product manager who works closely with engineers on a, on an engineering heavy product. So, um, totally agreed there. Um, when it comes to the first day on the job, uh, I know, I know you have some opinions on, or some advice rather for product managers who are starting a new job and want to, you know, really succeed in their role. What are some, uh, tips that you have for people who are starting day one at a new product management job? Oh, sure. And, and I think day one can be defined as like the literal first day on the job, or, you know, if you're a seasoned product manager and, and you've just been in execution mode and need to reset and like reset into what am I thinking about strategically in my day to day, these are some really great things just to go back to and recenter yourself on as a product manager. So number one for me is really about culture and putting culture first and being a really conscious leader. Um, product managers are often um, accountable for delivering product with teams that don't report to them, right? So in many organizations, you have a matrix team where you've got engineering reporting up through an engineering head, design reporting up through a design head, maybe business and analytics reporting up through a different and you're a product manager that needs to figure out, okay, how am I going to, you know, create the connective tissue between these teams and help them launch something? And you don't have what I would call, quote, role power to do that, right? Like you're not their boss, <laughs> you're a product manager. And so one of the big things that we look for in people that are doing product management is how... Um, how conscious of a leader they are and how introspective and curious they are about continually evolving that skill set. Um, and, um, and I think that's like one of the first things to think about. So whether it's on day one, like day, like literally day one, you know, you're going in and your focus is on listening and learning and earning trust and developing relationships with people. Um, if it's your, you know, reset day one, it's a, oh, who, who do I need to work on a project with? And maybe I should take them out for lunch and just talk about nothing like non-work stuff, right? Because when you have a trust and a rapport with somebody outside of the day-to-day -day work, then you're going to, that makes the day-to-day -day work more smooth. So I, I think a lot has to do with just being a huge human and introspective leader. And that should be like a good reset start place. Yeah, this is a, a common refrain. When, whenever I, uh, I've often received personal feedback about uh, me telling friends maybe about uh, workplace uh, hurdle, <laughs> I guess this is the best way to put it. And the feedback I've, uh, this is a common refrain to talk to the person, you know, um, there's this hilarious, hilariously accurate line from Star Trek where uh, uh, one of the characters brings another character aside and um, says something along the lines of uh, compliment publicly, give feedback privately. And what often happens when it comes to breakdown in communication and trust and uh, uh, 
uh, inefficient working relationship is that maybe you've made a comment publicly that uh, the person has interpreted as a criticism. And so they feel like you've uh, made an enemy of them, that you, you've demonstrated you're willing to use the, the worst tool of all in communication, which is criticized publicly. And that, that's, I've, I've witnessed that definitely happen in both directions. It's so, super hard to avoid because it can happen so accidentally because you, it's, it's hard to know what your audience is when you're discussing something where people's ideas are involved and uh, feedback. It's hard to give the right tone to that feedback because it might be in a text-based mode of communication, like a Slack or a Gchat. (laughs) As you're telling this story, I'm literally going through the examples where I've made that fumble in my history, right? So it's hard. And I think, again, that's where, um, you know, when I think about it in and I'll pull in now, I am a mother of two. So I think about it even in the context of parenting, where if I've done something that in retrospect, I realize I didn't do to the best of my ability or my intention, I'll tell my child and say, hey, you know what? Oh, shoot, mom made a mistake when she said this or did this. And this is what I really feel and what I really want and mean for you. And I think that's an important thing to be able to do because if we can acknowledge our mistakes and show our true intentions, that just creates more trust. And, um, and so it's tricky. It, it takes an ability to step away from your ego a little bit, which is also hard, but um, you know, yeah, I think I, it, it's, it's uh, takes practice for sure. And, and like you suggested, Sometimes doing something informal, like going to lunch with somebody and not talking work with them is enough to reset maybe how people interpret their, their relationship with you and what your incentives and maybe intent might be. Um, because generally everybody at a, at a startup or a, a business wants the same successful business outcomes. Uh, it's just that they have, it's hard to tell people's incentives and, and, Maybe there somebody couldn't get to doing the thing that you wanted them to do because they're being held to the fire to deliver some other thing that you didn't even know about. And it's hard to hard to get that information um, because sometimes it's not super visible. Yeah. Uh, that's, but your suggestion to go go to lunch with people is is I, I can totally corroborate that. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. You've highlighted the difference between your roles where uh, you've started as a PM at companies pre-launch versus ones post-launch. I know you've described to me the distinction of building on something iteratively versus building something new. And you described them as magical experiences. What is, what's, what's the distinction there or, or is there a distinction? One of the things that I did at Yahoo, at um, Demand Media, uh, other places is product managers is figure out how to iteratively improve upon an existing paradigm. And um, then things that I did at Virgin Charter and now at FAIR are completely breaking the mold of how things have been done. And I think it's um, been a really a real honor to be a part of that. A couple of examples at FAIR are that you know, there like I said, have been uh, no material innovations in how people can get access to cars in the last 50 years. There's been get a car through buying it, financing it, or leasing it. 
And then since then, there's been iterations on, oh, how do we make leasing easier, faster, better, or do lease swaps? Or how do we make it easier for you to get access to um, a loan faster and that, that sort of thing? So it's all been kind of incremental um, optimizations. And, um, and being able to be part of a company where we're saying, okay, how do we completely break all of those molds is really exciting. Um, and one of the things I've been able to learn a lot at FAIR as well is how to set a high standard for what is doable. I think when you're a product manager in a lot of contexts, there's so many boundaries and constraints, right? Like there's the existing business and you know that you want the needle to only go up and to the right. And you know that you uh, can't infringe upon this group's, you know, something. There's a lot of constraints to be operating within. And um, and the creativity that we get to exercise at uh, our startup is really refreshing where we say things like, Oh, we want to complete a com- create a completely digital checkout experience for getting a car, and we're going to make it feel as easy and simple as possible. Even though on the back end, interacting with each dealership and DMV across each state, you know, there's a lot of deep, you know. Uh, process embedded in each of those. So there's like, there's this glossy surface where we're saying, okay, on the top, we're going to make it feel really great. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on beneath that the consumer is completely sheltered from. And we just make it feel like you just, you know, you got a car over brunch and uh, you're going to head over to the dealership and get your car. And it took five minutes and they're just going to give you the keys and help you hook up your Bluetooth for your phone. Um, So it's really exciting to be a part of a company that can do that. Um, some examples specifically would be, um, you know, creating again that fully digital checkout experience. I think there were a lot of hurdles in that process here, where that was the vision, and the team would go be like, "Here's how we want to do. We, we can't do it. We've run into this hurdle or that hurdle and this hurdle and that hurdle," and it, the mandate was literally figure out how to make it happen. And and and. Um, and I don't think I've ever really worked anywhere where it was so clear that we just need to figure out how to push the boundaries. And it's been a really great experience. I think one question that a lot of people might have is around how product managers collect feedback and how that feedback might inform uh, product decisions. How do you guys do it? So we have a number of different sources for feedback um, at FAIR, and that would be everything from our app store reviews to, um, you know, people in the field on the ground providing feedback to doing the um, user experience research that we do um, to friends and family, to people who send emails and LinkedIn messages to our founder, like across the board. Um, And so I think, you know, the, the feedback is all really important and helps us understand what's working and not working and how to prioritize our backlog or what to bubble up to the surface as a new project. Um, and one of the more important ones for us is really also our, our growth and our ability to offer new products and expand into new geographies and how things are performing in those places. 
I realize we haven't really covered what the product experience looks like from the customer's side of FAIR. Uh, do you mind giving a little bit of a description of what that looks like? So for the product experience on FAIR, it's um, probably one of the most magical consumer experiences I've been ever able to be a part of building um, because we combine so many experiences into one. So if you think about historically, when you've bought in a car, you've had to figure out how am I going to finance it? Where am I getting a loan? And then you have to fill out like a five page loan application or lease application. Then you have to figure out what car you want to get. And then you have to figure out what price you think is the fair price to pay for that car and then negotiate and which dealership you want to go to and then go to a dealership. And then you probably need to like leave and come back or whatever tactics you have around negotiating. And then you need to go and hardball again and then think, okay, I'm going to sit in the office now for two to four hours as I fill out all this paperwork. And then I'm going to get the keys to this car. And now I'm married to this car for like 36 months to 60 months, <laughs> whatever it is, right? That's your existing process. Um, and um, what we do at FAIR is that we basically say, okay, download the app. There's no long application. You just fill out your information, uh, your your name and your, your phone number, and then we'll get your your um, more information a little bit later in the process, but you fill out your name, your phone number, boom, you're shopping in our app, looking at cars at with prices that you can get now where you know that you are qualified for them. So that's a big difference because a lot of people on the different spec levels of the, the credit spectrum are shopping and they don't know if they qualify for the deals that they're seeing and the prices that they're seeing. So we think it's really fair to show you cars at a price that you know that you're going to be offered. And then you can look at cars, scan, see the pictures, see the, um, the details on them. You can pick whether you want to get our insurance or not. I mean, that's a whole nother headache you don't have to worry about. You can um, add mileage. And if you pre-buy mileage, we refund you what you don't use when you return the car, because that's fair. Then you basically sign in the app. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay to pay, and you just put down your start payment and then your first monthly payment, and then we bill you monthly. You go to the dealership, pick up your car. The pickup is often 15 minutes long. You show up, they give you the keys and ask you if you need help setting up your phone, and you drive off. It's that simple. Um, and the magic of it all is that it's no term. So if you want to return the car, in one month, six months, 12 months, it's up to you with just five days notice. So it's just the ultimate in flexibility and the experience is really, um, really magical. So people who, who get cars come back and say, I never thought it could be like that. For those further curious about the FAIR experience, you can try it yourself. Go check out FAIR.com. Uh, if you have questions for Cassie, uh, you can feel free to reach out to her on LinkedIn. Uh, thank you, Cassie. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you, Max. It's a pleasure. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.